Welcome to Season 3 of One Day You'll Thank Me, a podcast for smart parents. I'm Dr. Tara Egan. And I'm not a Dr. Anna. I'm a mom, a therapist, and an author. And I'm a daughter and a kick-ass high school student. Each week, we'll discuss a different parenting topic. And we'll interview some fantastic guest experts. We'll leave you with practical tips and information. Plus, you'll get the perspective of a teen. Stay tuned, everyone. Boom. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome back to One Day You'll Thank Me. Hey, everyone. You're excited, aren't you? Yeah, well, guess what I just realized? What? This is, I think, the first episode that we've recorded that I don't have my braces on. (laughs) (laughs) So you won't have to work so hard to enunciate? I hope not. I mean, it was rough. We definitely had some more editing mishaps because of your tendency to kind of slur your words. Yeah, I've had to say my sentences over and over again before. It already sounds clear. Yeah. Good job. I love having my braces off, not going to (laughs) lie. Well, we'll see. Hopefully we won't just learn that you slur your words regularly and we can actually attribute it to braces. I hope so. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm going to introduce our guest expert today. She's wonderful. Her name is Colleen Cavanaugh, and she's a certified physician's assistant at Carolina Complete Psychiatry, which is a psychiatry practice here in town in Charlotte, North Carolina. And Colleen and I were co-presenters at a school, a local school, where we did a presentation on how to support your students who have ADHD. So she talked about sort of the, the medical side of it, how medication can be used to support these kids. And then I talked about some therapeutic strategies and some behavioral strategies. And she was just smart and personable and accessible. So I took advantage of having that interaction to invite her to be on our podcast today. Yay. I know. I know. (laughs) I feel like this is going to be an episode that rounds out some of the discussions we've had with therapists Mm -hmm. about mental health issues like depression or anxiety. So because medication can be a really nice supplement or a really nice, I don't know, portion or aspect of the treatment that people and kids get. I can't wait to learn more. I mean, I've heard like people taking it and them improving and whatever. So Mm -hmm. it's good to hear the medical aspects and just to hear like real life examples of it actually happening, you know? Yeah. And there's some good science behind it that's helpful to know. Well, let me tell you a, a little bit more about her. Colleen is, like I said, a certified physician's assistant. And at Carolina Complete Psychiatry, where she works, they focus on providing medication management and like a really collaborative care plan with therapists and other medical providers. And so as a therapist in the community, I work with this practice a fair amount. They offer longer appointment times to provide a thorough and comprehensive treatment plan. And one of the things that I most appreciate is that they offer appointments for new patients quickly. Like you don't have to wait three months or six months to get psychiatric care. When you call them up, their business model is such that they want to see you within a matter of days. So considering that I work with some kids who really struggle with behavior, emotional regulation, you know, symptoms of significant anxiety, like this is a big deal for me because it's really disheartening for parents if they call up and try to get support and it's like, oh, well, we have an appointment in three months. Yeah, I bet. Yeah. So they do work with children, adolescents, and adults. Obviously, because I work with kids, I tend to be collaborating with the professionals there about kids. Mm -hmm. And they do have evening hours and telehealth appointments. So they try to be really 
accessible to the community. So I'm a really big fan. Yeah. So stay tuned, everybody. Please enjoy Colleen Cavanaugh. All right. Thank you so much for being with us today, Colleen. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to talk with you guys about kind of what we do in practice every day and answer some questions. Oh, good. I, in the intro, I noted that you and I recently did a presentation together. And so I exploited our relationship to get you to be on the show. <laughs> it was a fun presentation. I enjoyed that. Yeah, it was. It was. It was really good information. And what I'd really love to do is just start by asking you a little bit about your training and what led you to this field of being in psychiatry as a physician's assistant. Absolutely. So I started my I guess, undergrad career at the University of Notre Dame, and I decided on getting a psychology degree. I thought it was really interesting. But going through college, I always was interested in medicine and the PA field really fit what I was looking for. So I ultimately attended Wingate University's PA program here in like Charlotte area. And while I was there, I did rotations and everything. As a PA, you train in family medicine, but you have to rotate in a bunch of different fields. So With my background in psychology, I was always interested in what psychiatry would look like. And going through my rotation there, I realized how interesting it was and how you really get to deeply know your patients, which was something I really liked. And I also recognized that there's a really big need for mental health providers everywhere. So being able to be involved in that was really special to me. And I was able to have an opportunity to work in psychiatry after graduation. So here I am. I feel like as the therapist or like the therapists in the community, you know, we have Facebook pages and stuff like that. And if somebody hears about a new psychiatry person, psychiatry clinician, it's like, we're like a whole bunch of flies on (laughs) a dead cow. We're like, who's that? What do they do? Who's the population? What's their wait list? Do they take insurance? Like all of us are in a tizzy because it is so hard to get psychiatric care here in Charlotte. And it's not like, I mean, we have a whole bunch of really amazing people, but it's just not enough. The need is great. Yeah. And that can really make the difference. Having that piece of treatment can really make the difference between it going well for someone or it being less successful. Agreed. Yeah. In your experience, what variables contribute to a new patient or a new client seeking out medical management for mental health care? Like, is there a catalyst that tends to bring them to your front door? There are so many different things and it really is patient dependent. I would say most, you know, of course there can be that trigger that, you know, the suicidal ideation or a big panic attack that leads someone to come in and it's an emergency and we need to take care of things. That certainly happens. But I think one of the more common things is people just notice a difference in their everyday life. They've noticed that they're not functioning the way they used to before. You know, they're worrying about things and they can't get things done, or they're just feeling really low and not interested in doing the things they always do. So I think that's probably the most common. It's kind of like everybody has bad days, but when those bad days are strung together and it's not just one bad day anymore, I think a lot of people realize maybe I could use a little bit of extra help. And I think therapists do a really good job too, especially for my patients who have seen a therapist for a while, there comes a point where the therapist may recommend, I think we may need a little bit, you know, a little bit of extra help. This might be a step that would be potentially helpful for you. And that can sometimes be a catalyst for them walking through the door. I feel like some people need almost like permission from a parent, from their partner, from a therapist to acknowledge like, Hey, this is, this is getting to be too much. Like this is too big of an impact on your life. I always say to patients like, 
and I call them clients and I know you call them patients. So we're probably going to use those terms back and forth, but I'm always like, oh, we have science. We don't have to live this way. Right. (laughs) And so, because I just think there's so, you know, there's all this medical support for it. And there's a lot of research about the efficacy and I just want my clients to be as informed as possible. But I think sometimes they put a lot of pressure on themselves and send themselves a message like, this is a huge step if I do this. This is like admitting that something's really, really wrong. Whereas I view it differently. That's so common. I hear a lot of people say that to me. They're like, I'm, I'm concerned about this. Like, what is this going to look like? Does this mean that there's something wrong with me? And I always try to validate there's nothing wrong. Sometimes your brain just needs a little bit of extra help. And that's what we're here to give it. I mean, we're here to provide that extra support. Yeah. Well, it's can be very freeing when I see clients who go and they connect with a psychiatry professional and they feel they feel really heard and their care is nuanced enough to account for whatever their personality or if they have some sort of other physical ailment or just the factors in their life, like family history and things like that. And they when they feel really heard and they see this medication can really make a difference in sort of taking this heavier piece that so far therapy or exercise or good nutrition or support from family isn't really budging and and chips away at that so that they can feel better and better. That's huge. A fellow colleague of mine at the office uses a lot of metaphors. And one of the metaphors she uses is it's like when you have depression or anxiety, you're floating out in the ocean, struggling to keep your head above water, but you can see the island and see where you want to be. So sometimes when therapy can't be that life jacket, we can think about medication being that life jacket. So you keep your head above water and then you continue to do the work in therapy so that you can swim back to the island that you have been like longing to get back to for so long. That's what that reminded me of. That is a great metaphor. I know that in my work with families, we'll talk about, you know, therapy and the in the goals we have, and they'll say, Well, I just want to try everything first. I just want to try everything first before we consider medication. But sometimes, depending on the symptoms that that for me, children are conveying or portraying, it's like they can't access the strategies that we're doing in therapy. Like they're struggling with emotional regulation or their anxiety is so intense or they're just so sad that even though like their brain can comprehend what we're saying, when it comes to being able to push through discomfort or manage their emotions enough to access the coping strategies that we're working on, Like it just becomes too hard. And so it's so discouraging when we teach our kids like this has to be an absolute last resort. And then it feels to them like therapy is failing. When in reality, sometimes if we did them in tandem, then we have the medication to support them, like you said, the life jacket. But then they'd be able to access so many of the therapeutic strategies. And then together, those two things together can really give them a lot of resilience and protection against, you know, future symptoms. Absolutely. It can prevent that almost burnout of therapy because I see a lot of people who come in, they're like, I've been in therapy for so long and I'm not getting anywhere. And you're right. It's just that overwhelming, whatever the symptoms are that make it so difficult to implement the coping skills they're learning. I think it's often really successful when both are combined in a lot of cases. Now I'm going to ask Anna, do you, when you think about your friend group or your peer group, is there any 
you know, conversation about using medication to support symptoms of anxiety or depression or ADHD or anything like that? I've had a friend who was debating on going to a therapist because she felt depressed, but I don't think I've ever heard them talk about using medication. Mm-hmm. I'm not even sure if they knew, like, well, I don't know, because I remember in fifth grade, there was a girl who, it was like, I, I don't think it was a rumor, but she had depression. And so people were telling like everyone that she was going on medication. So she was going to be better. Mm. So I think that everybody like knows what it is, but they either don't talk about it or they don't just know enough to really. Yeah, exactly. I just think that they either talk about it and don't do anything about it to talk about it and say they're going to get help, but it never really comes up. Now, was it ever talked about in terms of kids feeling suicidal? Cause I know, I mean, that's a thing, whether it's on social media, some saying somebody saying something, about not wanting to be here or my life is so hard or something like that. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I'm normally the only suicidal stuff I see is like prevention or like help people. Information like post, about it. Yeah. Like the phone number if you need help or anything like that, but not really. Okay. Obviously Colleen and I run in different circles. Than you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, when I was preparing the questions for this interview, you know, and there's so many different directions we can go with this. And there's so many different categories of medications and they treat a variety of health conditions. So I encourage you to kind of stay in the arena of managing depression and anxiety, because on this podcast, we've talked over the course of several episodes about depression and anxiety, and we've had some really great guests. So our audience, if they're familiar with this podcast, is familiar with what those are, what common symptoms we could expect if there is a diagnosis. So when we think about the medications that would support individuals with anxiety and depression, what types of medications are there out there for that? And what's sort of the science behind it? So before I answer, I just want to tell everybody, I'm just giving general information. So if anything like resonates with a listener, I want to make sure they actually talk with a provider before using my information, because it can vary from person to person. But in general, We use so many different types of medications for management, though the most common for both anxiety and depression is a group of medications called SSRIs. Long or short version is selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. This is because in both anxiety and depression, there's a brain chemical, a neurotransmitter called serotonin that's being dysregulated. And in both anxiety and depression, that's the main one that tends to be a little bit unbalanced. These medications go into the body and sit on those receptors and help the serotonin regulate more effectively so that it can improve anxiety and depression over time. Definitely people probably have heard of some of them. They might include like Zoloft or Prozac. Those are the ones we usually go to first line because that's where the studies show it tends to be most effective in a first line medication or a first choice medication. Sometimes one of those medications isn't a good fit for someone whether that be because of side effects or it just doesn't seem to be effective. Sometimes your genetic makeup can just impact the way your body breaks down a medication. So we might have to try a couple of different medications to find one that fits your body best and find one that works the best. So it can be a trial and error, but usually those are the ones we start with. If then those aren't seeming to work, we can go to a class called SNRIs, serotonin norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors. And those include another chemical called norepinephrine that also is commonly involved in depression and anxiety, work in the same ways just with that additional chemical. And those are usually ones that we can also use effectively if the SSRIs don't seem to be working as well. 
What are some examples of those, the SNRIs? Cymbalta, Pristique, and Effexor, I would say, are the three most common ones. Okay. That's helpful. How long does it normally take medication to work? So that's a tough question. Initially, we always like to start at lower doses just because I don't want to just blow someone over with a really high dose of a medication if they don't need it. So we start at a low dose and check back in in about four to six weeks because that's when the body would really see benefits. If at that point, no real benefits have been seen, we could always adjust the dose or talk about a different option depending on how the patient was feeling. Okay. I know parents worry about side effects of those medications. Are there common side effects that patients should look for? Absolutely. I would say, so serotonin tracks sit all the way down your GI tract. So in your mouth, your stomach, your colon, all of that. So initially the serotonin receptors interact with some of those medications and you might have dry mouth or nausea or some upset stomach. However, after a few days, the receptors in your stomach and your colon realize that they're not supposed to be interacting with that medication and they stop doing that. So usually those side effects are pretty transient and get better over time. However, it can, you know, medications can affect everyone differently. So if anyone was noticing anything unusual, I always recommend they come and talk to me about it. You know, if you're having any weird physical feelings, if you're feeling tired or just different in general, talk to me so we can figure out, is it a medication thing or is there something else going on? Tell me a little bit about gene site testing. So gene site testing can be a really helpful tool. It is a a tool that we use in our office to help patients figure out which medications may be the best fit for them. What happens is we contact GeneSight, which is the company, and they will send, usually we have people come into the office, but COVID times, GeneSight ships a box to their house and you, you do a cheek swab on both of your cheeks. You send it back and in the lab, they do genetic breakdowns or they break down your genes to figure out which medications fit in which category. There are three categories on the gene site test. So there's a green zone, a yellow zone, and a red zone. Green zone medications are are medications that your body is most likely to metabolize correctly based on your genetic makeup and therefore have the highest likelihood of being effective. Yellow zone, it breaks it down into different reasons why you may not use those medications as effectively. And red zone is the same, but usually those are ones that just really won't work as well with your body. It also gives us information on this one gene called the MTHFR gene. And long story short, there's a metabolite in your body when it's breaking stuff down that without that metabolite, you can't necessarily use these medications effectively. So if there's a problem with that gene, you're not going to get the benefit from the medications as much. So it will show that and we can treat that with an over-the-counter supplement to help make the medications metabolize more appropriately in your body. Holy moly. I did not know that last piece. Yes. It's really cool. That's amazing. One of the things that I discuss with parents or encourage them is to ask about the gene site testing, because although I'm clearly not an authority on it, sometimes that can really ease a lot of their concerns over the idea of doing something that's trial and error. Absolutely. Because that's really scary for parents if it's like, especially if they've gone through a lot of therapists or their kid needed extensive support at school. And it's like, okay, so now we're going to go down this path of medication. And you're telling me it could be months or a year or even longer before we really hit the appropriate combination of services for this child. And so they feel really discouraged. And so I tell them, you know, hey, there is this tool out there that may be able to help isolate which medications your child's body will metabolize most effectively. So hopefully it can minimize 
the trial and error piece of it. Am I correct in saying that? In some cases, yes. It really is dependent. Sometimes we get someone's gene site back and they metabolize all the medications correctly. And you're like, all right, well, I guess we're picking from them all again. But in the case that we do get a gene site back and a lot of things are in the yellow zone, it can narrow it down to which ones we can start with that are they have a higher likelihood of working. I tell parents and patients, it's never a 100%. This isn't giving us the green light to say, we found the one, this is going to be the one that works, but it does narrow down our options. So the trial and error seems less overwhelming, like you said. My mom was really mentally ill and she used medications from, I would say, the early 90s is when she was diagnosed. And I remember she just seemed to have a really extreme reaction to different medications. Like there was some that really worked beautifully and there was others that would really intensify her symptoms or she would have a physical reaction to. And I remember she was super persistent about, you know, going back to the psychiatrist and really working on finding what was the best fit for her. But I can't help but think, you know, where she living now and could benefit from some of this science that maybe wasn't available then, like maybe that journey could have been easier for her. Yeah, absolutely. It definitely helps narrow things down and your genes don't change throughout your life. So gene site is good forever as far as I know. So it's always a good tool to have. Oh, well, good. I'm glad I thought to ask about it. I guess I want to speak a little bit more about the the hesitation or sometimes outright fear that parents have about connecting with a psychiatry professional to get information about whether or not meds would be a good fit for their kid. Some things that I hear about is, you know, fear of side effects, like you mentioned. I hear about being afraid their kid is going to like turn into a zombie or be a kid who has apathy and and just like a, a loss of interest or an inability to feel happiness, you know, that's just going to kind of dim their bulb. What do you think? Because I know you've come across that too. Like what, what how would you speak to parents about that? For any parent that's bringing a child, and that's a huge step, and I know that it can be stressful. I have adult patients who feel stressed about coming in, so I can only imagine the stress a parent feels when they have to bring their child to a new professional. I think any concerns or questions are valid and justified, and I always want parents to know that if they have questions or concerns, they can bring it up with me because I'd rather help answer that than have them afraid or uncertain about where we're going and what the plan is going to look like. In terms of side effects, like I said, the most common ones are usually transient. So I try to let patients and parents know that they usually will get better within five to seven days. So if they did have anything ongoing, I would want to know about it to make sure we did have the best fit so that we weren't, I don't want your child not feeling like themselves or feeling physically ill just to try a medication. I want to make sure that you're feeling good while we're working, you know, physically while we're working on the mental health piece. The zombie one is definitely something I hear frequently from parents and from children. Everybody wants to have their personality, but maybe a best version of their personality, not have the anxiety or the depression that they feel like is overwhelming by the time they're walking in my door. So though that can happen on these medications, usually it happens at higher doses. So that's why often in my practice, I start at a lower dose and only increase if we need to. Usually that can help avoid those zombie or numb-like feelings and rather, you know, show the benefit of decreased depression, decreased anxiety, whatever the case may be. If anyone ever experienced that, and I do tell people, if you ever get to a point where you feel like 
man, I normally can happy cry about things, but I can't even do that. Or normally I would be excited for prom or whatever the case may be. Come and talk to me about it because I want to make sure you can feel those positive emotions. My goal isn't to just help you with your depression or your anxiety. My goal is to make your life overall more manageable and enjoyable for you as a provider. That's what I want. So I want you to be able to feel those good things for sure. So I want people to talk to me about that if they're ever experiencing that. That's good. I know that with some of the teenagers I work with who have struggled with anxiety or depression for a while, right? Like maybe they're, I don't know, 10th grader, 11th grader, they felt really, I don't know what the word is, blue. You know, they felt down, they felt discouraged, maybe had a lot of negative thinking, and maybe they can remember back feeling that way since fourth, fifth grade. And now they sort of view this component of themselves as being actually part of their identity. Like the idea of being a kid who's maybe a little bit more cheerful or can think on the positive side or shows affection more freely or doesn't feel the need to withdraw as much to their room. Like they feel like they would just not even recognize themselves anymore. So sometimes as a therapist, one of the things we have to work on is like, you know, how do you want to define yourself? And is this something you feel is part of your identity or is it something that you've sort of been saddled with for a long time and it's inhibiting you from really expressing that best version of yourself? What, do you, what are your thoughts about that? I, I definitely have heard that frequently. You know, I see some kids come in and they just feel like this has been a part of them for so long. They don't know who they are and almost like they lose a piece of themselves. If we start treating the depression or the anxiety, there's almost a fear of, what is life going to be like without this? So I always work with the therapist on that because they see those kiddos more frequently than I do. But I also want to let the kids know when I'm seeing them and talking to them, even though depression and anxiety are present, there is more beyond that. At one point, you weren't depressed and you weren't anxious. And it can be scary to think about life without that. But it's like treating anything. Like the grass is going to be greener in this case. Like we can work towards that greener grass, even if you can't see it being greener right now. So definitely a lot of encouragement in that regard and a lot of support to see that things can get better, even though you're worried, what is that going to look like? Yeah. We've talked a lot on this podcast about how Anna here is pretty, you know, pretty intense. She's detail oriented. She's super academic. And so Sometimes I'm like, hey, I think your anxiety dial is like just a little high. And she'll be like, yeah, but it's what makes me get stuff done. And if I don't have this level of anxiety, like what if I don't work as hard? And I'm like, "Mm, that's anxiety kind of lying to you a little bit. (laughs) I don't know. I think it'd be so weird to not be like worried all the time (laughs) or just, I don't know, constantly making lists about things I have to do. Yeah. I don't know. I, I like making lists. So if I don't feel obligated to do them, what's it going to be like? I don't know. Well, I don't think anti-anxiety men take away your love of lists. <laughs> <laughs> That's not part of the side Not that I've heard. <laughs> no longer makes lists. <laughs> but I do think I tell kids and parents, like, we just have to see if life doesn't have to be so hard for you. Like, it's not that you're doing terribly. It's not that you should feel badly about how you're doing, but like life is like 20% harder for you than it needs to be. And you can accomplish all of those things that you want to accomplish, but not have your heart racing all the time or have a really hard time settling down to sleep at night or get hyper-focused on certain details. You know, and I'm just thinking about anxiety, especially for high-performing 
Absolutely. individuals, like I hear about those characteristics and they feel like, oh, well, if you take away my anxiety, I'm just going to be useless. Right. And I tell people these medications, their intention is not to completely negate anxiety. People who have anxiety are always going to have some level of it. So the drive, I mean, like you said, the anxiety piece is sometimes good. You know, sometimes it does get us to get up and do things. If you're not concerned about something that has to get done, is it going to get done? But when it starts to negatively impact your life in some way is when I would be more concerned about it. If you were laying awake at night and not being able to fall asleep, or you were worrying so much about small details that it was taking you hours and hours and hours to complete things, that'd be more concerning to me than just, I worry that I'm not going to get things done. So I make a list to make sure it gets done. Because trust me, I make lists every day. I don't know what I would do without them. (laughs) Yeah, it's a solid strategy for regardless of your your mental health. But yeah, yeah. No, I'm glad. I'm glad to hear that, that we share that perspective. And and I tell kids too, like, it's not going to take away your work ethic. You know, it's not going to take away the fact that you want to go to college and that you care about pleasing your teachers and that you want to be kind to your friends. Like those all things are part of you already. And it's not a, the degree of anxiety you have that is instilling those things. Like that's who you are. That's the true identity you have. The anxiety that you're feeling that's just keeping you running, running, running all the time, you know, that's the part that adds that level of stress and maybe is counterproductive sometimes. Absolutely. And that goes back to, I don't want to change your identity. I just want to help you have a more productive day that isn't maybe as stressful or as low. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things I wanted you to speak to was I do hear on occasion, it's not super common, a fear that using medication could lead to drug addiction. Tell me about that or what what you know about about that. Definitely a valid fear in some cases. So we think about different as needed anxiety medications, like benzodiazepines, things that people may have heard of like Xanax. Those can definitely have a habit forming component to them. But especially in children and adolescents, we really avoid use of those for that reason. So that's usually not something we would use first line. When we think about those SSRIs or those SNRIs that we talked about earlier, those are not habit forming and don't have that addictive component to them. So much less likely that there would be any form of addiction because studies don't show that that exists. I know that where this conversation really does come into play is in terms of stimulants for ADHD. But I also want to say, so even though stimulants have a risk for abuse, when they're used appropriately, that risk is low. And studies show that when children who have, or adolescents or teenagers who have ADHD are properly treated for that ADHD with stimulants or non-stimulants, the risk for addiction and substance abuse is much lower than those who don't have treatment for that ADHD. So even though there's a stigma of that risk of substance abuse or misuse of a substance, it's much lower when things are being treated appropriately. Well, and if we see kids who have untreated anxiety, depression, or ADHD, and they are in a peer group where they're experimenting with alcohol, you know, marijuana, there's a lot of kids I've worked with who, let's say now they're 16, 17, 18 years old. And they're like, yeah, I've been using marijuana since I was 13 because it helps me sleep or because I I can calm down. And now that's their preferred way to soothe themselves. And so when we start talking about like, hey, let's have this, 
be a little more legit and not have you bite off some dude at school. And like, we can absolutely uh, treat these symptoms and do it in a more monitored, healthy way. Like sometimes they're like, forget it. Like this works for me. This feels good, you know, and they will absolutely refuse medication at that point. And I just think, oh, did we miss our window with this kid? You know, whereas if we had approached that conversation before they had become reliant on weed, would they be more willing to collaborate with us on this path? Yeah, that's definitely a huge thing because it is that self-medicating property. And I think a lot of children and adolescents don't see that as self-medicating. They just see it as something everybody else does and it makes me feel good, uh, depending on the person. But I always say to parents, because I know parents think, you know, a lot of parents will think, maybe I should wait until this, or maybe if they're a little bit older, medication would be more appropriate. But if there are signs that your child needs help and therapy just isn't creating as much of an improvement that you were hoping for, having a medication on board sooner rather than later may be beneficial depending on that child. It may prevent that use of that substance or making it more difficult down the road. Even though there's that stigma, and I know parents are afraid of the stigma of medication, I don't think there's anything wrong with, you know, if your child had diabetes or asthma, you're not going to leave that child struggling through gym class because they can't breathe because they don't have an inhaler. I think depression and anxiety are similar. That's something that's going to be there unless it's talked about and unless it's managed with therapy and or medications, because it's just the same as a physical medical diagnosis, in my opinion. Yeah, I think a lot of parents feel like it's an optional thing versus saying, okay, this is an essential part of my child's overall well-being. And sometimes parents will say, well, I'll just wait till they go to college. If they need it, then then we'll get it. And I'm just like, but they're going to go away to college. You're not going to be able to support them in developing the habit of taking it daily because it's really hard on kids if they take it randomly. Absolutely. You don't know if there's side effects, if there needs to be, you know, a change in dosage, like to expect your freshman aged college student to be able to manage that by themselves. If they've, especially if they've had no experience with it before, like that's a big ask. And so I tell parents, like, if you're open to it and you know, your child Like this is something you're considering. I do encourage them to have that conversation with a psychiatry professional before they go away and you don't have as much access because I'm like, you could spend that year or two before they go to college really figuring out the, the most nuanced care for your kid and making sure they know what to do to advocate for themselves versus being like, well, if it gets bad enough in college, then I'll consider it or then they're old enough to just figure it out on their own. That seems like a really big burden for them. Yeah. I always say the more support that the kid has, the better it's going to be long-term. I think if they are still at home and have that support of their parents and their psychiatrist and their therapist and their teachers and friends and everyone they've known for so long, making that transition is going to be that much easier, especially because going into college, I often talk about with my college-aged patients, where are you going to go for your resources? If you need extra counseling while you're on campus, where can you go for that? Let me help you find those resources. So they're available to you when you get there. And I think it sets them up for better success when they know what to expect and know what they need to do when they get to college rather than getting there and just being unsure and alone. Mm -hmm. It can be hard to speak up when you're like, I'm at a college, I got in, 
Maybe I have some friends, like I'm supposedly doing what I want to do, but I don't really want to call up mom and dad and be like, things are hard. I don't, because sometimes it's not like there's some specific trigger. Like I broke up my girlfriend of two years. Sometimes you just feel bad. And I think that there's times when people experience anxiety or depression and they're just looking, looking, looking for this magical trigger. And if I just know what the trigger is and I adjust that trigger, like it's going to be fine versus understanding like how your brain processes neurotransmitters is not effective and it's not really based on what's happening in your environment. Like you just might need this medical support to kind of get that all squared away so you can go and enjoy your life. Absolutely. It's definitely holistic. And sometimes there are those triggers, but there's so many cases where it's just out of nowhere. Someone just wakes up and they're just not feeling themselves and it just doesn't get better. Yeah. Or they have a panic attack, which is really scary. Yes. And if they can't pinpoint what caused it, which oftentimes there is no magical cause, they then develop a fear of like, oh, it's happening. It could happen again. And they don't understand it. And I mean, I have so much sympathy. Those are earlier in this interview, I asked you, you know, what is the catalyst that can cause people to reach out to you? And one of the catalysts that I see as a therapist is panicky feelings. And it's really hard on them. They're super scary. And when panic disorder develops, when you're just afraid of the idea of having a panic attack, so you're avoiding things that you don't even know why you're avoiding because maybe they would trigger it, it leads to shutting down so many parts of your life that could be open if you were able to manage those panic attacks. Yeah, absolutely. So as a therapist, I'm going to ask you, what can therapists do to support the work you do? Is there anything that we, you feel like we do really well that is helpful to you? And is there anything you wish we, would, we wouldn't do? For sure. Therapists and PAs and psychiatrists are trained totally differently. So I have a huge respect for what therapists do on a daily basis because that's not the type of things I know and not the type of things that I would do well. So you provide just another aspect of that full range of care for a patient and being able to collaborate therapists and collaborate care with therapists is huge for me. I find that I can provide much better care to my patients when I have the ability to talk with their therapists it doesn't have to, like, I don't have to talk to them on a weekly basis or anything, but just being able to have check-ins to say, what are you guys focusing on this month in your sessions? Because I know I don't see that child as frequently as their therapist is most commonly. I usually see them every four, eight, 12 weeks. So being able to talk with someone who speaks with them on a weekly or bi-weekly basis just opens my eyes to those nuanced things that I don't have a chance to talk to the patient about in my session with them. And ultimately, I feel like leads everybody to give better care because I can update the therapist on what I'm seeing and what I'm doing. And the therapist can update me right back on what they're talking about, what seems to be working well and what seems to be still kind of an ongoing issue. That's huge for me. I just can't stress that enough. Well, that's definitely our goal. I mean, I think that like for me, the type of therapy I do, I often have connections with the school too. So then I can give that perspective and you know this since we have some cases we share, but it's the home piece. It's the interaction directly with the child. It's what's happening with school, maybe friends. And if there's cer certain symptoms that I'm seeing and I can report to you and that you can kind of figure out if there's a way to manage or take them into account as you're providing medical care. So what should we not be doing? My biggest recommendation would be if there's ever an issue with symptoms or you feel like maybe a medication isn't working as well as the patient was hoping, don't make recommendations to the patient about what they should do with medications. I'd rather the patient come talk to me about that 
Or even if you reached out and said, or a therapist reached out to me and said, I'm not sure if this medication is working because of this. I'd rather have that conversation with the therapist directly or with the patient directly, because sometimes there can be some miscommunication or misunderstanding about the plan medically as compared to in a therapy session. So I'd rather be able to have those conversations and I'm happy to talk to therapists about what I'm doing with medications, but in terms of making those recommendations, I'd rather handle that in my appointments and just talk about that one-on-one with the patient. I have heard therapists make commentary or something where they'll refer to specific meds or, and I'm like, whoa, dude, stay in your lane. Like alert, (laughs) like you're not trained for that. Like alert the psychiatry professional about what your concerns are, what you're observing, but like you cannot, I don't think ever, you know, Hey, have you asked your psychiatrist about this medication or that medication? Like that's not appropriate. Like that's, it can definitely be stressful because then I have to backtrack or explain maybe that's not the best fit or maybe it is. And this is why we haven't gone that route yet. So it can create a much more complicated conversation than if we had just had the conversation ourselves. Well, and also too, is it can undermine the psychiatrist or the psychiatry PA where like I might be asking a question to a client, but it appears as though I'm questioning their treatment plan. And if you already have a nervous parent and then you're saying something that suggests that that professional is on the wrong path, like the whole thing can get really complicated. And so I really want clients to feel very trusting, very supported, like they should, can ask questions. And so can I, like, I'm always okay with like, let's ask a question versus me giving an opinion that is completely informed and is not at all appropriate for my level of training. But I have heard it happen, like in casual conversations with other clinicians and they'll like mention a, a medication name and they'll be like, oh yeah, I think that they should try this or that. And I'm like, oh, that's not cool. I appreciate that. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and that's, you know, we're bound ethically, like all of us, you and me, to operate within the boundaries of our training. Absolutely. And so if I haven't been trained, I mean, beyond peripheral, you know, knowledge about it and the knowledge I've gleaned over the years of being in this field, I have no business making any kind of medical recommendations or statements. And so, yeah, I think that clinicians out there need to be, you know, reminding themselves about our ethical obligations. Absolutely. All right. Well, cool. So any final thoughts? I mean, I so have appreciated your time. I know this is kind of a general overview of what medications can do, how they can be helpful, managing parents' thoughts and fears about taking this first step if they haven't already. Is there any final thoughts you want to make sure our audience hears? Absolutely. I guess there's one fear that I often hear that we didn't touch on yet. And that one fear would be a lot of times when you think about things like antidepressants, one of the big concerning side effects that comes up is an increased risk of suicidal ideation when you're taking that medication initially. And it's called the black box warning. And for patients and parents alike, that can be really scary to hear when you're thinking about a medication. And I definitely get that. It's not a side effect that I enjoy having to talk about by any means, but I always emphasize it is extremely, extremely rare. So back in the 90s, when this initially came out, doctors were afraid to prescribe these medications more so because of the risk of suicidal thoughts and the rates of suicide did increase. So we know that the risk of that side effect almost never outweighs the benefit of potentially treating the depression or anxiety. 
and how rare it is. It does not increase the risk of actual attempts or actions of suicide. It's simply the thoughts. And it's so rare that it is worth talking to the provider about for sure. But usually the benefits of treatment can outweigh that risk of that side effect. I have to say in my you know 20 years of being in the mental health field, I haven't seen that happen with the, with the child, which is probably why I didn't think to mention it. But I have, you're right. I've heard parents mention that as a, as a potential concern. And, you know, if parents have heard their kids use, you know, scary language or, you know, language that implies that they're having th- suicidal thoughts, their fear, of course, intensifies. It can cause them to feel very stuck, very torn. And I have so much sympathy for it. But, I've always been comforted by the fact that I have so much experience. I've never actually seen it in real life myself, but yeah, parents need to ask if they have concerns about that. Absolutely. It's unbelievably rare. I always stress that, like you said, but definitely that's something that I see parents being concerned about. So I just wanted to reassure in that respect. And I guess aside from that, I think the biggest thing to remember when you're coming to me as a provider and hopefully many other psychiatrists or psychiatry PAs, it's not just looking at a patient. I'm looking at you as a person. I'm looking at that child as a person. So I want to make sure that you're, you know, are you sleeping? I want to know about your lifestyle. Do you have a dog? I want to know you so that I can treat you as a person and help you be your best self instead of just as a patient. We always say it's 70, 30, 70% is that child's lifestyle and what the work they're putting in is. And then 30% is working on the psychiatric medication management and therapy. So we want to work to assess the person as a whole rather than just as a, another patient coming through the door. Do you feel like that's specific to your practice or do you feel like that's a common mentality for other psychiatry professionals out there? I can't say if it's common because I have never worked any place else other than Carolina Complete, but I think that's definitely our practice's policy is we give longer appointment times because we value getting to know you as a person rather than just as a patient. I want to make sure that we have time to talk about every aspect of your life because your physical health and your mental health are so intertwined that we want to make sure we're targeting everything and making you feel heard rather than just rushing you in, asking you if you're having side effects and then rushing you back out the door. So I'm grateful to work in a practice that does emphasize that and gives me the ability to work in that manner. Yeah. I mean, I obviously have so many different interactions with psychiatry professionals here in town, and I have to commend the consistency with which Carolina Complete Psychiatry collaborates with therapists. And so, I mean, it's, it makes you, I think, you know, one of the strongest gigs in town because you are providing such comprehensive care. Now I realize, you know, you don't accept insurance. This is a private pay service as am I. But I think that it's money well spent for a lot of families, especially if parents are just so fearful about starting this process, like that is a good opportunity to go in and have a longer appointment and ask those questions and really feel good about the care you're getting or the care your child's getting. So you can decide if you, you want to take that step. Yeah, absolutely. I just want to make people feel comfortable when they're coming to me. Cause like I said, kind of circling all the way back. It's such a scary decision and a scary thing to meet a new provider and talk about medications. So the more we're able to get to know parents and patients and children, the better we can treat them and the more comfortable we can be over time. Well, if, if you're a listener right now and you'd like to find out more about Carolina Complete Psychiatry, you can go to their website, which is cccpsychiatry.com. 
And if you go to the providers, you can click on Colleen's name and learn more about her specifically. But they're, you know, a great resource here in town. And if you're not local, definitely, you know, do some searching online and talk to your friends and connect with other parents. And there's organizations that are out there to support kids who are struggling with depression or anxiety or suicidality. And, you know, people are really knowledgeable about which professionals in their area are providing high quality, comprehensive care for kids and their families. So, yeah, we really appreciate you being here, Colleen. I I can't tell you enough that I realize you're taking time out of your day and you're full of information and I would love to also pick your brain sometime more specifically about ADHD, but I knew we just weren't going to be able to tackle all of that today. There'd be a lot of stuff to talk about, but I was so happy to have like be here and I had a lot of fun doing this. So thank you for having me again. Ah, you're welcome. Well, did you have any last questions, Anna? I don't know. I learned a lot. Thank you. Yeah. Of are course. you going to... You're, you can take your knowledge and spread. You're taking AP psychology, I think, next year. You can. Mm-hmm. That's going to be relevant. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, everybody who's tuning in, we appreciate you listening. Make sure you tune in to new episodes every Wednesday. Make sure to visit my mom's website, which is www.drterryegan.com. Love you, mom. Love you too, sweetie.